Hi, everybody, and welcome to Martin Van Dyke Undercovers for June 2022, produced in partnership with the Ann Arbor District Library. This month's interview is with Dr. Scott A. Small about his book, Forgetting the Benefits of Not Remembering. Scott Small has dedicated his career to understanding why memory forsakes us. He's the director of the Alzheimer's Disease Research Center at Columbia University, and there he focuses on patients who experience pathological forgetting, and it is in contrast to their suffering that normal forgetting, which we experience every day, appears in sharp relief. But until recently, most everybody believed that all forgetting, normal or pathological, served no purpose. New research, though, in psychology, neurobiology, and medicine tells a far different story. And this is what Scott writes about in his new book. Uh, He takes us through studies of chimpanzees to his visits with the iconic painter Jasper Johns to look across various disciplines and to put new scientific findings into context while revealing groundbreaking discoveries about Alzheimer's disease. The next time you forget where you left your keys, remember that a little forgetting does a lot of good. I began my interview with Scott A. Small by asking him to talk about and differentiate between the pathological forgetting of Alzheimer's and normal forgetting, which can actually benefit our cognitive and creative abilities. I am making a very clear distinction between what I treat as a doctor, which is pathological forgetting, the worsening of our forgetting. That occurs with age, that can occur because of age-related disorders or just aging itself, versus normal forgetting. The forgetting we're all born with occurs naturally, uh, and yet we all complain about that kind of forgetting. And so you're right, Martin, at the get-go, that at some point this is a subversive book uh, against what I've been trained all my career, that we should be forgetting we should be fighting for getting tooth and nail, that more memory is always better. And um, what really emerged as, as an interesting punchline from the new science of forgetting is that uh, we and many of my colleagues are wrong. <laughs> I'm so fascinated, again, near the beginning of the book, Dr. Small. We just take these things, these miraculous things our bodies do every second of our lives for granted. And to have you run down how memories are made in our brains, that's just slack jawed, and, and and you made this actually understandable. It's it's an, a pretty complicated process. Can you explain that to to the people who are listening right now? I, you know, how do I make this memory? How do I remember being on a train from Los Angeles to Chicago in 1962? I can still remember this like it happened yesterday. How are memories formed? Well, first of all, uh, I take that as a sincere compliment for me because that was my goal to make this accessible. And you're right, it is complicated. But just so you appreciate, this is not my that first chapter, which describes and tries to explain how memory works, is not dumbed down. I use this, the, the, the um, pedagogic examples I give and the maps I give is exactly what I use uh, in training medical students uh, young, young neurologists as well. So it, there's ways to simplify any complex system. Memory is certainly complex. Uh, and I have the benefit of having the perfect analogy that we're all familiar with, and that's our computers, our personal computers. And if you think about it, when you type something into a Word document, 
you need to do two things. You need to be able to save that into your hard drive and you need to be able to retrieve it tomorrow successfully. So that's memory uh, saving and memory retrieval. And once you understand that conceptually, which we all intuitively do, I can actually boil that down to what parts of the brain do the exact same thing with the kind of memories that we form in our own lives. So how does something get turned into this memory? It's like, is it three parts of the brain that are involved primarily, right? I would, if you, if, if I might, I'd like to highlight primarily because this is all of course a (laughs) simplification, but Mm -hmm. that's exactly what maps are. They're simplifications. And, but yes, fundamentally there are three uh, operations we need that computers need that our own natural computers need to process, save, and store information. And there are fundamentally three general areas that do that. Now, the other thing, Martin, not sure if you want to go there, that really explains the blueprint about how information is shifted, stored, and retrieved. I also go into how that actually happens at the neuron level, which is, I think, what people really want to understand when they say, well, how are memories formed? Well, let's move on to this. I mean, you are talking about in your book some of the the benefits of forgetting let's let's get into this we're we're talking about what what are the benefits just unpleasant things gee i i well think i want to remember you know when you touch a stove you get burned that i, I don't want to forget that but what are the some of the what are some of the benefits of forgetting what, what are you talking about here yeah uh if i may i'll just give a sort of overview first the book is based on the new science of forgetting of normal forgetting by which i mean that brain cells basically form memories by enhancing their interactions between them. You have a strengthening of connections. And we've known for the last 50 years that brain cells have dedicated nanomachines in them that that, that cause that construction to happen, that strengthening of a connection, which is very much a construction site. And it used to be thought that normal forgetting was just a rusting of the memory mechanisms. And the new science of forgetting has shown us that there actually are a separate group of nanomachines that nature has endowed us with that actually disassemble those connections that are the basis of normal forgetting. So you have two toolboxes in neurons, essentially, one dedicated to memory and one dedicated to normal forgetting. And what I say in the book is that, you know, one could pose the question, well, if nature endowed us with nanomachines for forgetting, one might then conclude that it must be beneficial. Now, that's a slightly slippery conclusion. Mm -hmm. Nature has endowed us with an appendix and it doesn't serve a function. Mm -hmm. But what I then do is go chapter by chapter reviewing insight in neurology, computer science, psychology, and even philosophy that shows how you need to have memory balanced by forgetting in order to live smarter, happier, and better lives. What role does sleep have in memory and forgetting? This, again, is such a, such a, a real mystery, sleep in general, why, and, and, and the fact that we, we have to have it, but it makes us, you know, any animal really, really vulnerable when you're unconscious, obviously. Absolutely. One of the great mysteries. Uh, we, we understand our needs, physiological needs, I mean. We understand why we need to eat, why we need to drink, why we need to rest. But something we spend a third of our lives in, 
most most of us a third of our lives mm-hmm. vulnerable to the dangerous environment that's be, that's been a mystery and there've been a lot of theories and what has emerged in a new science of forgetting is a validation of a hypothesis that was first proposed by Francis Crick of the DNA fame oh, that and, Crick. Mm-hmm. Yes, that's right. Francis uh, Crick and Watson described the structure of DNA in 1960s, got their Nobel Prizes. And then Francis Crick, who apparently was one of the smartest guys alive, said, well, you know, that's easy. Let me move on to more difficult things. The mystery of sleep and the mystery of consciousness. Mm-hmm. And so on the mystery of sleep, he proposed something in the 1980s, which was really just a provocative thought piece that we need sleep to, to, to what he called smart forgetting. We need sleep to disassemble our memories that we've accrued over our waking lives. Much of the information is unnecessary and detrimental to our clarity of thought. Now, that was a provocative idea. His students uh, took that idea, and only in the last 10 years did they have the tools available to really test this idea. And they're right, and he was right. We basically need to sleep, one of the reasons, not the only reason, to forget smartly things that because after all our brains are very sticky with memory we any if you just think of a 20 of a eight hour period of your day your brain is storing all sorts of things not everything you need to remember and if you didn't have that sort of cleaning of the slate which is the forgetting that occurs during sleeping you would have very staticky uh, uh, co- incoherent thinking and that's actually what has emerged from the new science of forgetting as well Dr. Small, another one of the most fascinating passages in your book is this chapter came out of nowhere where you you talk about your conversation with with a friend of yours, one of the world's greatest artists of all time, Jasper Johns. How do you know Jasper Johns? And and why did you include your conversation with him, conversations in your book? Right. And you're absolutely right. I uh, am blessed by knowing Jasper, not only because he's a a true, true revolutionary artist and one of the greatest living American artists, certainly, uh, but because he's a man who really cares about the creative process at the brain level. And so he happens to live across. I live. We have a farmhouse in upstate New York. He happens to live across the border. We met socially and we and we quickly struck a friendship. Me being um, awed by him and his fame and his art, him being interested in brain mechanics and creativity. And it led to a really interesting discussion, both on pathological forgetting. So he was very friendly with Willem de Kooning, another famous American artist who did die with dementia. And we talked about, well, how does pathological forgetting affect the creative process? But the, we, end, we then moved into what I found more interesting, and that is how does normal forgetting help creativity? And that's where sleep seemed to be the great uh, example, because it turns out that a good night's sleep is required for creativity. And one of the reasons is because we need to clear our minds. We need to have our minds loose and playful to make the sort of cognitive alchemy, those eureka moments. And if I may, Emerson has a great quote where he says um, that imagination is the morning of the mind and memory is its evening. And he intuited, like artists always do before scientists, that in fact, we're most creative in our mornings, typically, not always, because we've cleaned that slate from unnecessary uh, noisy information. We could create. 
this is your field in, in dementia and Alzheimer's. What are your thoughts on on this new drug? Wow, this I've read a lot of controversial things about the new prescription drug for Alzheimer's. What, do you mind talking about that for a moment? I, I don't. I can't and I shouldn't. <laughs> I don't because I'm involved with it. I, I can't and shouldn't because I've already been publicly clear on this. Uh, because it is my field. I am the director of the Alzheimer's Disease Research Center, but I wear two hats. Uh, the uh, approval have, has in many ways uh, triggered a furor and a, and a vitriolic response. When I wear my academic hat, Martin, I can be as furious and as vitriolic as anyone when we debate the kind of, you know, the essence of it all. But in this case, I focus most of my attention on my other hat, the hat of being a physician mm. who help, has to help doctors across the world and patients manage this complexity. So I've taken the dispassionate approach of trying to be a physician who helps others. And in that sense, the recommendation is because those trials did not really show cognitive improvement a decision, and this is where doctors actually have to be physicians and not robo-doctors. There's no algorithm. It rests on a particular doctor's understanding and conscious and belief. Unfortunately, we have to go into belief because it rests on the assumption that the hypothesis that amyloid plaques, these sticky aggregates in our brain, is the root cause of Alzheimer's disease. That's called the amyloid hypothesis. If you're a doctor who really knows this and believes in that, and belief is the right word here because there's no proof one way or the other, you might prescribe it. If you're a doctor who doesn't, and there are many who don't, you would not. The real problem is that middle group, the middle group of doctors who are simply not sure because the science hasn't yet answered it. So it's, it's really up to the doctors to be the decision makers here in this particular case. Another big question, are we anywhere close to an ultimate cure for dementia? So, so yes, and I, I actually end the book with an epilogue, which is effectively what <laughs> this particular publishing house and editors wanted me to write. Others have asked me to write the book on Alzheimer's, which honestly would have been easier for me because it's what I do on a day-to-day -day basis. I am willing to write that book, but only when we have a better last chapter, the chapter of the cure. Otherwise, it's a little bit premature. Now, to your question. I am by nature, at least scientifically and medically, a pessimist, a worrier. Mm. 10, 15 years ago, I was abjectly uh, pessimistic about the possibility of finding a cure. Now, I and others have justifiably, I believe, shifted into cautious optimism. And I can tell you why. The mechanics cliche applies. You can't fix something unless you know what's fundamentally broken. And it turns out, that we've only in the last few years have figured out what's fundamentally broken in Alzheimer's disease. So now that we're playing in the right playing field, right? Lights on in the playing field, the home run will be hit. Hard to know exactly when, but if I may, the last year of COVID has shown that if a pathway is known, a pathogenic mechanism, COVID, a little bit simpler, the biomedical enterprise is so sophisticated that they can quickly develop a cure around that. So I'd like to use that as a, as a way to justify my cautious optimism. I hear about music helping people with dementia or people who have, who have lost so much memory are, are still 
aided by music in in some type of way when why why is that on music the 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 behavioral therapy for memory loss is really anchored in how uh, on the mechanics of how memory happens as we discussed in the beginning so music happens to have this uh immediate um and very uh rich trigger it what music does is it triggers a lot of emotions a lot of memories more so than many other memories maybe olfaction odors have the similar kind of effect and so the brain is a plastic organ by which i mean the neuronal connections that i was describing earlier that that is the basis of memory that's plasticity meaning thing memories can form and and and, and memories could fail and so the idea, I think, behind music therapy and other cognitive exercises, perhaps, is that if you can engage your memory centers and activate and reactivate them, you're more likely to preserve those memories. And that's completely independent, Martin, from the joy that memory gives us all, certainly you and certainly me. And joy is a very important part of remembering that in early Alzheimer's disease, patients do not suffer the lack of joy of art, life, and family. Mm. Well, look at Tony Bennett. I mean, he just sang apparently his final two concerts in New York City at Radio City, and uh, apparently was in. It sounded incredible. I, I, I don't, I don't know that that is blo- it's so mind blowing. So the, the the so first of all, you're absolutely right, and he is absolutely incredible and still incredible. And I think it's generally now known that his memory has been failing, and who knows exactly why. But that's another deep point. So I do acknowledge, I do um, dedicate the book to my patients who suffer from disease. Uh, this is not the kind of book that that poeticizes pathology. There's a silver lining. Not if you speak to my patients. Mm-hmm. However, on the flip side, what most of my patients recognize and teach me that because Alzheimer's is a slowly progressive disorder percolating for decades, in its earliest phase, it causes just mild forgetting of new things we just learned. But as the musicians you mentioned and the artists I can, and de Kooning for that matter, yeah. he, he had dementia yet. He was able to create uh, Tony Bennett, not sure what he has, but he was able to produce beautiful, beautiful art. So the ability to create art and to enjoy art is preserved many years into the course of someone who has early Alzheimer's disease. And one of the things my patients taught me is that in our world, we tend to over-index learning new information, right? Statistics and knowledge. But actually, uh, life is more than that. I know it's, a, it's an obvious truism, but my patients have taught me that they still enjoy their lives, even if their uh, memory systems are, not, are imperfect. And I think that's a deep lesson that they've taught me and for which I'm grateful to them. Thanks for listening to Martin Van Dyke Undercovers for June 2022. Our interview was with Dr. Scott A. Small about his book, Forgetting the Benefits of Not Remembering. This has been a presentation of the Ann Arbor District Library. I can't forget you.
loving you.